namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa aparutha desangamatasatavara So on this occasion, Sunday afternoon, I welcome everybody and uh, I'm enjoying spending this period of time here in New Hampshire with Ajahn Janto, Ajahn Anando and the Sangha. And then to reflect upon Dhamma is one of the joys of this life. And uh, I remember in Thailand years ago, just about my third year with Lung Po Cha, uh, he asked me to give a Dhamma talk on uh, on one of the official uh, celebration days. And uh, and I, my tie was not all that good, <laughs> and I'd only been a monk for three uh, for three years, and I'd always dread having to do public speaking, speaking in public, and so I I said I would, but then it was about three days to the official day and I panicked and uh, I told him no I can't do it impossible I just the whole idea of uh, giving a dumb time I said I'm not a teacher I I haven't practiced long enough and Lungpa Cha's response was you you probably know much more about Dhamma than the rest of the people <laughs> And I never thought of that, actually. (laughs) So fortunately, he let me off that time. But then at another time, shortly after that, we went up to uh, look at a property north of Ubon City. And... um, that was being offered by villagers to have a branch monastery. And so we looked at the property, it was very nice, and we accepted. And then we went into the, the town, the small town, to the monastery, to the temple in the town. And then out of the blue, Lung Po Cha said, Sumaitu is going to give a talk. <laughs> So, my first talk was the public talk on Dhamma was in this small town in in northeast Thailand. And uh, Thais are very generous people, so I I just said things. Buddhism is a very good religion, I like it very (laughs) much. And they all said, oh, you speak Thai very well. (laughs) (laughs) So that encouraged me. I wasn't in a group of critical minds that were going to to find fault. Lung Po Cha told me they just wanted to hear me say something. But as part of the custom in uh, Lung Pacha's custom for 
junior monks to give talks. And so, and then these talks are, you know, when you think you have to be an expert on Buddhism before you can give a Dhamma talk, and then, you know, that kind of thinking makes you uh, very, say, I'm just not equipped to do that, I don't know enough. And, and you, you're creating a, a sense of your own disability, inability to to talk about Dhamma. But Lungpa Cha's Dhamma was always about the way things are. And uh, so he encouraged this reflective, I use this word reflection, to try to encourage you to, to develop this ability to reflect on the way it is. And is, is it going to be exactly the same for each one of us that the way it is right now is exactly the same? You know, and, and uh, you think the ultimate way it is in terms of the enlightened state, the Nibbana, or the way it is as we experience it in the present, here and now, and so this this emphasis on awareness here and now, and so the awareness of I'm not an expert. I'm not. I'm too uh, shy. I'm too ill-equipped. I don't want to do it. All forms of thinking that would arise in terms of the self-view. And being aware of that, that thinking is, is an artificial condition. It's not, you know, we get caught in we projecting our thoughts onto the present moment. And so what we feel in the present moment is, is like this, whether we feel at ease or uncomfortable or, or peaceful or chaotic or confused. Is not the issue. It's not about having the right mood at the right time, but being able to reflect on it. It is the way it is. So one of the emphasis Lungpo Cham and his Dharma talks was to be the puto, the the knowing of the way it is. As you experience this present moment, it's like this. And so he'd always say, the way it is, <laughs> and after a while this began to sink in to my thick mind. And uh, because, you know, I I felt, I, I, I felt, uh, well, the way it is 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 uh, it's okay, you know. I'm I'm okay, uh, or I'm not okay, or <laughs> but whatever my thoughts uh, would arise in the present moment, I began to observe them, and then through through the process of meditation, with pasana, investigating the way it is is, uh, you know, we have very clear, very helpful teachings about observing, being the witness to the way it is here and now. And that's what I always appreciated in this particular tradition was, uh, you know, the signposts, the directions were very skillful. And... uh, (laughs) And that those are the basic teachings of the Buddha in, uh, in the Pali canon, the, the uh, Tripitaka. So in observing the way it is, it, you know, I would, I found out, I would, 
tried to, I had an idea that the silence in the present moment, I had to find it. And uh, I had to, uh, you know, I had this uh, fixed idea, which wasn't really wrong, but the the silent mind, uh, I had to spend, put a lot of effort in my meditation practice to realize silence. And so I, you know, I spent a lot of time concentrating and trying to develop the mindfulness of the breath and and use the various techniques that were considered very good. But the whole point was there was this sense of me trying to get something that I I began to this idea that I'm not good enough. I have to do a lot of practice over years to attain uh, real insight became an obstruction because even in trying to concentrate on the breath, there was so much of my ego involved in it. This sense of I've got to get the, the to the first jhana, the second jhana, I've got to attain and uh, this sense of me and mine, of being somebody that that must, that has to get everything right before I can realize the ultimate, which is nibbana, or complete freedom from delusion. And yet, by using delusion to find ultimate reality, to find nibbana, wasn't working because the sense of me and mine, I have to get something I don't have that I heard in a Dharma talk or I read in a book. I began to question that. And the four foundations of mindfulness uh, teaching also is very clear about how to develop awareness of the body, of the feelings, of of the emotions, of how we see consciousness through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body. But I still interpreted the the, uh, four foundations of mindfulness from a very Western uh, conditioned mind. Now, the Western conditioning it's very much a sense of a separate, unique self. So the American cultural conditioning is very much promoting a total belief in yourself as the uh, as your thoughts, your own thoughts, your own feelings, your body are definitely what I am, and there's no question of that. And so, to this day, when you listen to the media, you hear these, uh, these, uh, this resonating sound of, of me and mine, and my rights, my views, my opinions, uh, my feelings, uh, all of political correctness about social identities, and on and on like that, so that we, we, we reinforce all the time through thinking and through believing in thoughts as our reality, that we miss the point. We we don't know, we're conditioned to do that. We're programmed when we're learning a language. We, we're programmed to, to grasp the, the definitions, the meaning of words and what's right and what's wrong. And in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, Hamlet is quite reflective to be or not to be. (laughs) But (laughs) then he says to his two friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, when they come back from England to Denmark, and, and he's saying, good and evil, 
I know that, that, but thinking makes them real. And so that's quite a profound insight. Thinking makes our sense of reality, whether it's deluded or not, you know, we tend to see it through ideas, through thoughts. And we want to define it. We want, what is Nibbana anyway? You know, and so, you know, usually it's defined in English as the highest happiness. But then ask yourself, what is happiness, ordinary happiness? Because when we're happy, we, we, we take it very personally. I'm very happy today. And um, then we, we uh, want that all the time. We like to be happy. We don't like to be unhappy. And so uh, the, the highest happiness must be better than this happiness moment because we see it in terms of, of personal experience. So the sensual world that we identify with is all about experience. We experience life through the senses. And so we, you know, our experience is always, you know, it's, it can be changing. It's always changing, in fact, and not always for the better. So, you know, what we experienced, the changing of the season here in New Hampshire, and we, uh, we, we have to define it as the fall, and then we, uh, you know, then we begin to feel the change of temperature, and then we hear about changes in hurricanes in Florida, and on and on like that about the endless way things are changing that make us unhappy. Nobody wants to be living in a, under a hurricane. And then we can look forward to long, hot summers, summer days, warm, and, and remember them in the cold winter season. And so we reminisce about the past or look forward to the future. But we, so our reality is based on these illusions of memories that we hold on how we're conditioned to think, the way we've been programmed to believe in things, in ideals, in, in uh, all kinds of uh, uh, theories and, and ideas that we, uh, you know, consider right or wrong. So in the mass media, you know, they talk about this is a severely divided society now, the American society. <laughs> and uh, so the, the, this sense of division and right and the right side and the left side, when we're grasping these views, then we make it so. Thinking makes it so that our belief that the United States is, is a very divided society is a belief that is sent over the internet through the mass media that we, we uh, tend to believe or we can disbelieve. We say that's not true. But investigation or reflection on the way it is, isn't about attaining anything as a person. You know, after 56 years of monastic life, you say, what have you attained? And uh, an attainment doesn't, isn't the right word. You know, so it's like you don't attain anything. You let go of everything. So the, the insight that you have through being witness is in letting go, relaxing, and, and then that gives us a sense of this panoramic view of life rather than the, the narrow view that we tend to grasp when we're holding views and opinions about right and wrong.
So in reflection, I used to try to stop thinking. You know, I had the insight early on in monastic life, I had to stop thinking. And uh, so that's the best interpretation at that time that I had uh, of the path. But uh, trying to stop thinking is still something that, that me, as a separate person, must do to realize non-thinking the way it is. So, you know, it, it, uh, the idea of I've got to let go of everything, of the, my thoughts, my views, my opinions, uh, my beliefs, helped in the beginning. But then you reach a point where it doesn't work anymore because when you've, you've, uh, you still have the basic delusion that you are somebody who has to stop thinking. And I couldn't really stop thinking. I could remind myself to let go. I used that, the two words, letting go. And Lumpur Cha encouraged the use of Puto, the Buddha's name. Uh, and uh, that certainly worked for a while. It was very helpful. But the basic delusion of it's me that's letting go, me that's chanting Puto, me and mine, and and so the the uh, you know the the being re, being able to reflect on non-thinking. What is that like? And so the in Thai Thailand, it, uh, the monks med- meditation monks talk about Jit Wang an empty conscious awareness, empty consciousness. And then they talk about it, uh, have you attained it one? And, and of course, you know, as a person, my personality can't attain it one, empty consciousness. And as long as that belief that I really am this separate form, this body, this personality, you know that try you know no matter how virtuous I might be, keeping every rule of the Vinaya, obeying all the uh, traditional form, being praised by the the society I live in, you know the, the sense of a separate self still tend to dominate how I interpreted my practice, my life, and my position as a Buddhist monk. So just trying to stop thinking or looking for Nibbana as a goal, I started listening to thinking. So to listen to thinking, you know, I had to put myself in the the position of the puto, the the knowing of the present. It's like this. to witness thoughts isn't about judging thought as wrong, right or wrong, because that takes thought. Even a bad thought in the present moment, if I consider it bad thought, then I'm, uh, th- as Hamlet says, thinking makes it so. <laughs> so how do you get beyond that? How do you get beyond just the habitual way of thinking and identity with virtue is to deliberately think. So I started just intentionally thinking. I I have to realize Nibbana and start thinking I, as a separate person, have to realize Nibbana the goal of the holy life, it's all very idealistic, very good, but it is thought. And then you become, you, you know, you, you're listening to yourself thinking about what you believe is yourself, but is that which is aware, awareness itself, 
Sadi Sampatanya, is that a self? Can I claim that as as me and mine? And if I do, it's still a sense of you know words that I'm somebody who has uh, sati mindfulness and clear comprehension of the present moment. That I'm somebody that that has realized this. I know what it means. So the proliferating thoughts manifest through this basic belief in a separate self. But then, if I stop thinking, if I, rather than trying to find ultimate reality through words, through definitions, through beliefs, in the Nibbana Sutta, this... uh, there is this very fine teaching, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And so this Nibbana Sutta is, uh, I began to really investigate. And and then the Buddha says, he makes this, this statement, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. If there was not, then there'd be no escape from the born, the created, the form, the condition. And so I began to observe that all thoughts are conditions, whether they're virtuous and high-minded ideals or, or coarse and low or evil. Thinking is something that, that is created. It isn't unborn. It's not uncreated. So what is the unborn? And just by investigating my thinking, I became I began to to have insight into the space between the thoughts. Just the the sense of I, the the English pronoun I, just one letter. You know, so just by intentionally thinking I I began to notice, I began to be aware of the, the uh, space around I. I arises and ceases in, in, a, in a moment. So then, um, and, and then the space between I and am and the space before you think I, what is that? And so, you know, begin to not be so interested in the definitions, the words, the conditioned programming of the mind, but in the emptiness that underlies the the formations. That must be the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Because as you trust that awareness, that insight into the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, it becomes, you know, it, it, you start noticing that all the time. Rather than just in meditation moments and through some kind of technique of intentional thinking, it becomes, you realize that that's reality, that's real, it's not created. The silence, the resonating silence that surrounds the English pronoun I. And we don't notice that usually. We're conditioned to, to fill silences with other thoughts, memories, plans for the future. So in our spare time, we go on holidays to various resorts and nice places to get away from the pressure and busyness of city life. And, and, and then we have to take our computers along with us and, <laughs> and our iPhones and on and on like that to, to keep the mind busy rather than rest in the silence here and now that is available all the time, whether you're in the middle of New York or in some ideal remote place in the forest. 
So there is an escape from the born that created the form, the condition. And through this kind of, it gives you perspective. Silence is the background. Just like in this moment here and now, the space, which is uncreated. We don't create the space. We create the building, which, um, you know, we can say the space is is big or large or small, too small or whatever. Uh, those are thoughts that we have about space. But if you, when you're looking up at the sky, then the space, where does it end? You know, one of the things, like here at, at the Temple Forest Monastery, uh, Ajahn Soko takes me on buggy rides through the hill outside here, which is very spacious. And just noticing that, that the sky gives you perspective on the hills and the forest. And so the space is, is uh, you know, is, is greatly appreciated when you've been lost in the woods all the time. And as soon as you go into the woodland, you lose that perspective into the forest because there's trees all around, forests and vines and, and on and on like that, that that can grab your attention. There's your reality. But on top of the hill, outside here, that, that the reality is spaciousness. And years ago, in 1980s, when we established Chitter's Forest Monastery in England, it's a forest monastery. And that was the ideal for our tradition, was the Thai forest tradition. And so the ideal place was the forest. And then reflecting in this way, you know, I began, and in Thailand, I lived in uh, the last two years that I, before I went to England, I lived at what is called Wat Chat, which was a, a dense forest. So, and then in Thai jungles, they've got all kinds of insects and snakes. Uh, you always have to keep focused on the ground where you're walking because you're barefoot most of the time. And they have these terrible ants at Nanachat, big black ones that cross the paths at night. And if you don't take your flashlight and keep aware of the path uh, through, through the light of the torch, you, you're liable to step in the midst of one of these uh, black ants that really have a terrible bite. So I used to have a kuti in the, in the forest at Wat Nanachat at the time where, uh, you know, monk, it was on the main path and then suddenly you'd hear monks stamping, doing a kind of <laughs> <laughs> jig, trying to shake off these, and you can't kill anything, so... <laughs> <laughs> so in Thailand, you know, it became very you know, to keep your eyes focused on the ground in the forest was the ideal. But then in England, where the insect life is minimal, and then Chitters, after five years at Chitters, the beautiful place in West Sussex, southern England, uh, you know, the community had grown. So I was, in 1984, I was wanting to establish another monastery, and we came across what is now known as Amravati, which is on top of a hill. And my first impression was this is, you know, Amravati was a, a school of wooden buildings. It looked like an army camp, like a Boy Scout camp. But it was a school for children with disabilities. And it was up for sale, <clears throat> the property. And it was on top of a hill in the impression I had when I first went there was all this sky. And it really, you know, 
just my insight alone was was you know having meditated, contemplated, reflected on life, and uh, through many years before that, the insight was this is you know this is like a big, huge, endless dome of space because you get all the perspective around the top of the hill. So this was these were just my reflections on on physical vision, on how we see life through through binding ourselves to machines, to things that do the path uh, on the ground, to the dangers uh, on the road, and sometimes we we uh, you know we we spend our lives constantly looking at things or listening to things uh, without reflecting on the space, the emptiness behind all the forms that that we, we are experiencing in the present moment. So in the, this the intentional, deliberate thinking, because just trying to stop thinking doesn't work, you know, you can only sustain it for a very brief time, and then then you go back even more so into thinking again. So, just listening to the silence behind the pronoun I, and you don't have to use effort because it's here and now. If you were trying to use effort, then you miss the point because you're, you're, you're trying to find what is here and now when you're here and now anyway. So then this silence, you know, I would play with, with thinking. Like uh, my tendency as a personality is trying to be modest. I'm, my conditioning is to appear to society as a modest, reasonable person. So, so I, so I uh, would think, I am a modest, reasonable person. And, and I listen to the space. I'm not interested in the, in the words anymore, or grasping the words, but intentionally thinking this. And then I would think, I am the most selfish, self-centered, narcissistic person in the whole world. <laughs> and the space behind the, that scenario is the same silence as I am a reasonable, sensible person. And then I would say I'm, I'm a totally enlightened individual. I'm the best person in the whole world. <laughs> And the silence is always the same. So, judging from this, with the Nibbana Sutta, this silence behind the sound, behind the conditioning, is here and now. It's not created. So it's uncreated, unborn, unoriginated, unconditioned. But it's it's like I had a lot of it was actually quite funny to to create yourself from being the the worst to the best to just the reasonable you know modest I have my faults I know that I I'm not perfect kind of views of oneself uh, because whatever you think you know that you tend to to uh, you know, like if I think I'm the best person in the whole world, my conditioning would think that's not true. That's conceited. That's arrogant. That's overestimation. And then if I think I'm the absolute worst person in the world, then I would uh, think, no, you're not. There are worse people than you. <laughs> and, and, and I think I'm just an average guy. You know, and uh, and that the personality tended to agree with. I'm just an <laughs> average 
humble, sensible person. And so, you know, just by exploring the way we think, the, from one extreme, from the best to the worst, to the, to the in-between, is all conditioned phenomena. Then what am I if I'm not the body, if I'm not the, the, the feelings that I have through the body, through the senses, if I'm not the emotions that I feel about life as I experience uh, uh, through the senses, and if I'm not the, the senses themselves, what am I? And then the insight comes, there's the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And that starts becoming, you know, as you trust that insight, you begin to, to really trust it. Not a belief, you don't believe in silence. Because it's here and now, it's not, not about believing in in Jitwang or silence, or this estate to attain, it's here and now, apparent here and now, timeless. And the word timeless, Santitiko Akaliko Dhamma, is, uh, you know, timeless can't be created. Dhamma, conscious awareness, can't be created through thoughts, through ideas, through teachings, through conditioning. But it is unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. We don't create conscious awareness. No matter how hard you might try to do that, you can delude yourself into thinking you're doing something good, or you have moments where you you feel very contented and at ease or tranquil or peaceful, depending upon the conditions. But what if the conditions change? So I would investigate, like at Amarvati, uh, where they had this, uh, there are a lot of lawns, green lawns at Amarvati, and they, they have to, uh, mow these lawns, so we get lay people to to mow the lawns, and then we people offer very, you know very good lawn mowers, which make a lot of noise, and uh, and so I deliberately began to use the noise of the lawn mower to listen to the silence rather than just react to the irritating sound of of the lawn mower. Could I still be aware of silence behind the unpleasant mechanical noise of the lawnmower outside my kuti? And then another experiment was in Thailand. I used to go every year from England to Chiang Mai to a village in the, in the mountains outside Chiang Mai called Pongyang where they I'd give a week-long retreat and this this uh, was a resort in the hills outside of Chiang Mai, northern city of Thailand where um, a very beautiful place had the uh, Dharma Hall a small Dharma Hall was near a waterfall, huge waterfall and uh, and then a stream which made, you know, the lot of waterfall makes a lot of noise and the stream makes a noise, noisy stream. And the owner of this resort built the, the Dharma Hall right over the stream. So when, as soon as you go to this, this play to the Dharma Hall, you know, then you're, you're, you're surrounded with the sound of this waterfall and the stream. Which is repetitious. It's not. It's not irritating. I didn't find it irritating, but it, uh, you know, I could still. What is the sound of silence? Is this this empty uh, hum background of silence? Is it recognizable 
in this continuous flow of water. And, it, and I began to notice the silence more than the sound of the water. So in just in experimenting with noise, with cacophonous noises, with uh, mechanical noises, you know, rather than trying to control life, control the situation so it doesn't irritate me, I began to take irritation, frustration, as a, as a way of, of uh, testing whether this really, you could be totally aware in the silence behind the cacophonous noises that surround you. So it's a way of, of testing yourself. Challenge, life challenges us in our relationships, in, our, uh, in the Sangha life, when you have critical moments, uh, you know, the, the silence behind the doubt, behind the, the uh, trouble that, that you're supposed to solve, the, the crises that arise naturally in, in human uh, societies. You know, what is, what is the reality behind the, the crisis or the, the disturbed feelings in the present moment? Is the silence behind the noise. So that's the end of suffering, because if you trust that, and this is a matter of not believing, you can't believe in it. So it's not about, I'm asking you to believe me, but uh, encouraging you to trust awareness. You can't believe in awareness. You can believe in a concept of awareness, but what is it here and now is like this. And then you begin to to know the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned is reality itself. And what you previously regarded as reality is not reality. It's a changing incessant, inexorable changingness of phenomena that is beyond our control. To spend your life trying to find the perfect place, the perfect relationship, you know, is a kind of waste of a lifetime as a human being because the great gift of humanity is that we can reflect on it. Being human is like this. Being masculine, being a male is like this. Having a female body is like this. And it's, it's not about which is the best or the worst or better or anything like that, but just the awareness is what you are, the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned and not the human being, the man or woman, the condition that you tend to grasp and believe in. So that's, uh, you know, then in terms of the Four Noble Truths, this is Neroda. You begin to, the end of suffering, this Pali word Neroda means the end of suffering, letting go of the causes of suffering the result is neuroda or the end of suffering. So you still have a human body, you still have the conditioning of a lifetime, but your relationship to it changes from grasping it, believing it, letting that be your experience of life in a very personal way to non-attachment. When you see the pointlessness, the suffering you create through attachment to conditions, to phenomena. When you realize that for yourself, not just believe it because the Buddha said, but the Buddha, Buddha Theravada Buddhism is not about believing, it's about trusting in awareness. That's the, why Buddhism has a lot to offer us at this time, because it's a timeless teaching. It's not an ancient, 
Asian religion, like a lot of people think. You know, like I've been criticized for becoming a Buddhist because it's an old-fashioned religion, ancient to India and so forth. So it's it, we've we've got modern science and psychology now. It's much more advanced, but is it really? Because science and psychology are all about the condition realm, the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned, and how to try to deal with conditioning by being someone who has to do something, has to change the conditioning, you know, improve your conditioning, improve yourself as a person, try to make the world better, trying to, uh, or just not caring, just being caught up in your own feelings at the expense of everyone else. You know, so we end up in conflicts, that that we nobody wants, but are inevitable in the conditioned realm. The conditioned realm is all about right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. So it's then those are going to conflict with each other. Heaven and hell conflict with each other. Heaven we want, hell we don't want. And as long as we believe in heaven and hell, then we, you know, we can see in personality-wise, we want heaven, where everything's perfect, and we don't want hell, where everything's painful and miserable. So the, these are thinking processes, what they call dualistic thinking, that we tend to unquestionably believe in and share views about it, which endlessly get more complicated and and confused as you keep thinking and trying to improve it or just uh, seeing it in terms of just resigning yourself to fate or destiny. Where in the Buddhist teaching, it's about investigation, reflection on the way it is. So I offer this as a reflection.